Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Uh, my name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors. If we have any chance to meet, hopefully we get to do that soon. And so I want to welcome whether you're here in our worship center, you're joining us out on the paddle, uh, patio as we uh, celebrate this Labor Day weekend uh, together. Hey, just a minute, we're going to go into our time of teaching. But before we do that, just a quick announcement, kind of encouragement, really. You know, as, uh, as followers of Jesus, um, we are called to be salt and light in our culture, amen? And uh, salt that, uh, you know, the light kind of illumines the path, uh, salt slows down the decay, right? That's the, the, the metaphor. And, you know, one of the ways that I think that Jesus has called us as his followers uh, in this country uh, to be salt and light is to vote, right? And uh, uh, this is something that uh, is such a high privilege, and uh, to be able to uh, influence uh, who will be the leaders that will guide us, you know, into our future, and to bring our, our values as followers of Jesus uh, into the marketplace, right, and to influence uh, directions. You know, in Proverbs, it says, in Proverbs 14, there's this beautiful verse that says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin, um, and it, it'll be translated different ways, but sin uh, condemns any people or sin is a disgrace to any people. And you know, that, that proverb is true whether those in authority recognize the difference between right and wrong or not. What it, what it doesn't really matter what you recognize, it's like righteousness exalts, sin destroys, right? And so as followers of Jesus, it's so important that we are bringing our faith to bear and what we know in Jesus to bear. And so as you probably know, that we have an important election coming up uh, on September 14th, right, for, for governor. And I just want to really encourage you as your pastor that, hey, that, to take this responsibility seriously. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to vote for, for the people that we believe will lead us in the path of what the uh, path of righteousness. And Paul defines that in Ephesians 5 as that the path of light is what is right, what is good, and what is true. And so uh, I just want to, I, I know when I got my ballot, um, I didn't want to take any chances. I, I got it about two weeks ago. I filled it out the next day and got it in the mail. I didn't want to get lost or like that. And so uh, I encourage you to, to look at the candidates and ask the question, hey, who will lead us best in the path of righteousness? Uh, and uh, if you say, well, I don't even know who the candidates are, it's easy. Google it. Uh, leading candidates, and you then compare the platforms, com compare the positions, and then vote in the way that you think Jesus would want us to go. Amen? Amen. And so I want to encourage you to take that responsibility seriously. It's a, a, a tremendous privilege we have. All right, so we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. So uh, inside your program, you have a, a green and white message note sheet, um, and so I encourage you to take that out, and then if you're ready, I'm going to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. Well, Father, we're just excited to be here, to be in your house, uh, underneath your leadership, under the authority of your word, um, under the power of your spirit. And you said that wherever two or three are gathered, that you would be here. You said, call no man teacher, for you have one teacher, and that's the Christ, the Messiah. And so, Jesus, we come as your church. We acknowledge your leadership over our church, over our nation, over our state. And we just pray, Lord, that today, that as we look at this important passage, God, and, and talk about these times in our life when you delight, we pray that you would really speak powerfully, encourage us 
uh, strengthen our faith, uh, make things clear that we're muddy, and that we would hear your voice. So we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today in a, in a small village. Uh, it's a small village um, just outside, kind of less than two miles away from a major cosmopolitan city. And uh, on, on this day, it's been, this has been one of the hardest weeks of her life. Uh, the pain, um, the heartache, the sense of loss, it's, it's just brought her to her knees. And uh, honestly, when, when he first got sick, um, she didn't think much about it. I mean, people get sick. Um, people get sick, then they get better. Um, no big deal. But this time, he didn't get better. In fact, the more time went on, the worse he got. And at a certain point, they all became concerned. They decided to send for help. But they would waited too long. There was going to be no help. And now all that's left is the sorrow, the pain, the mourning, and most of all, the question they're all asking is, what if? Well, today we're continuing the series that we've been in for a long time now. Uh, it's called Signs of Path to Life. And for those of you who are brand new, a special welcome um, this is a series about the life of Jesus. It's a kind of in-depth study of one of the biographies of his life called the Gospel of John. And uh, if you've been with us in this series, uh, uh, last week we watched as Jesus had traveled once again with his men to the capital of the country, to Jerusalem, to celebrate the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Hanukkah. It takes place like in like late December or January in that, in that era. And uh, while he was there, he had said some things that had really irritated the, the religious leaders. In fact, they, they, they saw them once again as blasphemous, and so they had tr actually tried to kill him, to stone him. And he escaped their grasp, and as a result, he's, he's fled Jerusalem. He's left with his men. They've taken the 18-mile journey from Jerusalem at 2,500 uh, uh, elevation, feet elevation, 18-mile uh, windy road uh, down to near the Dead Sea where Jericho is at, down below sea level. And then after they got there, they've crossed over the Jordan River, gone to the eastern side of the Jordan uh, where John the Baptist had started his ministry. And so we don't know exactly where Jesus is on the east side of the Jordan. It'd be at least a day's travel, maybe 20, 25 miles, but it could have been longer. Uh, scholars will debate over exactly where John was baptizing. And so Jesus is out of harm's way, right? So as, a, as our story begins today, um, that we're, we're, gonna be, uh, we're gonna be introduced to an episode, John's gonna introduce one of the most important episodes in the life of Jesus. Uh, and it takes place not where Jesus is, it takes place back near the capital in this small little town just outside the city, a village called Bethany. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up to John chapter 11. We're going we're gonna to follow the first, we're going to pick up the first 21 verses today. There in your note sheet is a section called Signs, a Request and Response. So let's jump in. So now a man named Lazarus was sick. 
He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So John is about to introduce us one of the most important episodes in the life of Jesus. And, and so what he wants to do is set the stage by introducing to us the, the three main characters in this story and also their location. So the three main characters are siblings. It's his brother, this man named Lazarus. He has two sisters, Mary and Martha. Uh, and they're living in this small village just to the east of Jerusalem, about less than two miles away on the backside of the Mount of Olives called Bethany. All right? So, so he's introduced the characters. Now, before the action begins, before he begins to tell us a story, um, he, he wants to give us a quick sidebar about one of these characters named Mary. And so notice in your Bible, there's a parenthesis, and in verse 2, it says, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, this is interesting because John hasn't told us this story yet. But apparently this account was very familiar in the early church. His readers would have been familiar. And so he says, hey, by the way, uh, this is the Mary. You all know her story. You know, the one who uh, poured the perfume on, on, her, on Jesus' feet and then wiped him with her hair. It's, it's the same Mary. I just want you to kind of key you in. And so he, uh, he kind of sets it up. And so here we go. Now, here's the story. So, so Lazarus is sick. And at a certain point, uh, they start to get concerned. And so they sent word to Jesus Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, remember, Jesus is at least a day's travel away. So I want you to catch this, that, that the chronology of this account is hard to piece together super accurately because we don't know exactly where Jesus is. We know he's on the east side of the Jordan. He's at least 20 to 25 miles away. But as I mentioned earlier, scholars debate over where John had been baptizing, whether more in the south or in the north of, the, of Israel. And as a result, uh, Jesus could have been one day away or he could have been two or more days away. And all that's going to play into the story. But at a certain point, they're, they're concerned enough about their brother, they're going to send him a message uh, to Jesus, hey, could you come back? Now, remember, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem was about two or three months before, and they had tried to kill him. So this is a big ask. This is a big ask. And, and notice how they, they ask. They don't even say Lazarus is sick. They say what? The one that you love is sick. Right? They're, they're kind of setting this up as like, hey, you know, the, the, remember how close you are? Uh, remember how much you love him? Um, that he's really sick. And so they're making this appeal. And of course, what are they hoping? They're hoping that when Jesus gets this, he'll do one of two things, right? They'll, he'll either just, uh, 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 he'll drop everything and come to heal him. That's what Jesus often does. Or that he'll speak the word from a distance, right? Because we remember back in John chapter 4, very early in the series, you may remember that the, very, the second of seven major signs that Jesus performed, come miraculous signs, was do you remember back in chapter 4 when he healed the, the son of a royal official? Remember that son had, tr had tracked Jesus down in Cana, his son was in Capernaum, it was 16 miles away, and Jesus uh, just healed me. He said, your son is well. He healed him from a distance. And so I'm sure that what the sisters are hoping is either drops everything and travels, you know, travels to, uh, to Bethany before the brother dies, or that he just speaks the word. But what we're going to see is that Jesus does neither. Now, what I want you to catch is, is I don't know if you can think of an example 
But I can't think of any time in his life when in the Gospels, Jesus responds like he's about to respond. That in the Gospels, whenever someone comes to him and asks him to heal someone, he always responds. There's never one single time where he says, sorry, I'm too busy. There's not one single time where he says, no, your faith isn't strong enough, go work on it. Like every time he either comes or he speaks the word, right? And yet we're going to see in this time, Jesus responds completely differently, extremely unique. And so this messenger is coming. Now, remember, he's been traveling either one full day, like 25 miles, or more than that, maybe two days or three days, right? So this messenger arrives wherever Jesus is. And, and catch this, we're not, really, we're not told who was there when the messenger shows up with the message. Was it just Jesus? Was it Jesus and his disciples? Or was it Jesus' disciples and the crowd? Based on the rest of the Gospels, it seems like uh, Jesus is usually surrounded by lots of people, his disciples. That would be my hunch, but we're not really told. But when, it, when the messenger arrives, um, he, he arrives and he says, hey, the one that you love is sick. Is When Jesus hears this in verse 4, he says something really interesting. He says, this sickness will not what? It will not end in death. Now, what does that sound like to you? It sounds like he's not going to die, right? And if you're the messenger, you're probably, well, that's good news. You know, because when I left, he was alive. I don't know if he's still alive. It's, good, it's great to hear he's not going to die. Right? Now, whether the messenger hangs around for longer, we don't know. Uh, but my guess is he's not going to hang around forever. He wants to get back and tell them we know, what Jesus said. We'll come to that in a second. But, but Jesus, when Jesus said, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's what? Glory. God's glory. He said, this is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. In other words, that, that this whole sickness, this whole scene uh, is something that God is going to use to reveal who he is in such a way that it brings glory uh, to him through the son. And so uh, Jesus says that. And uh, again, we're not sure. It would seem that they all heard that. Probably the messenger probably heard that. And uh, but now, uh, before, before John tells us what Jesus is going to do, uh, he wants to set up the emotional context of the situation. Because what Jesus is about to do is not what you'd expect him to do. And so he wants us to make, real, make this clear how Jesus felt about Lazarus and his two sisters. And so John does a little sidebar, and he says, Now, Jesus loved Martha... And her sister and Lazarus. All three. He loved them. John was making very clear. Right? And it's a good thing he does because what Jesus does next doesn't seem like he loves them at all. And what he says is, so, you know, because he loved them, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed here for two more days. Now, like I said, this is the only time in the life of Jesus, email me if you think I'm wrong, but this is the only time I'm aware, I can think of in the life of Jesus, he does anything like this. Every time someone comes and says, my son is sick, or my, you know, my, my dog, whatever, the thing, like he responds. But Jesus doesn't respond. He says, 
He says, this isn't going to end in death. And then he just hangs out for a couple days. Now, I don't know when the messenger returned. But my hunch is he's not hanging out forever. And so I want you to picture this. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, here's Mary and Martha. They've sent him off a day's journey, two days journey. It's going to take at least another day to get back, maybe another two days to get back. They're wondering what's going to happen. And he comes back, and what's he going to tell them? Well, at a minimum, he's going to tell them that Jesus said this is, this is not going to end in death. Uh, at the maximum, he's going to say, well, is he coming? No, he didn't say anything about coming. Very confusing. I thought he loved us. Like, what, what's happening here? And so, <laughs> a couple days later, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, now we don't know if they were there when the messenger came and heard that Lazarus was sick. Probably, I think probably. But he does nothing for two days. And then after two days, he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Now remember, Judea is in the south. It's the southern province where Jerusalem is. And so they're thinking like, this is not a good idea. Do you remember what happened the last time we were in Judea? They tried to kill you. Like, you may want to rethink this. And so they said, but Rabbi, verse 8, a short while ago, the Jews there were trying to stone you. And, and you want to go back? And so Jesus gives them one of his mysterious answers. And he says, well, are there not 12 hours of daylight? So in the ancient world, you know, you thought of you kind of the day is basically 12 hours of day, 12 hours of night. And so he says, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by the world's light. But, uh, remember, this is a day before flashlights and, you know, street lines. He says, um, it's, it's when a person walks at night that they stumble. They have no light. And so what Jesus seems to be saying is that, hey, there's a time to go out. There's a time to stay in. And in my life, the night has not yet come. The night is coming soon. They're coming for me soon, but, but it's, it's still daylight. It might be getting late in the day, but it's still daylight, and so we're still safe. Yes, we're going back into harm's way, but it's still daylight. It's not time yet. And so I'm sure they have no idea what he's talking about. And so after he'd said this, he went on to tell them, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, again, I think chances are they probably had heard that he was sick. And he says, our, our friend Lazarus had fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. And it's like, that is no reason to risk your life. If someone is really sick and they're sleeping a lot, that's a good thing, right? They'll get better. Like, you don't need to go and wake him up. with his personal little uh, alarm clock, right? And so uh, they're like, uh, Lord... If he sleeps, he'll get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. And so he tells them plainly now, Lazarus is dead. Now, first of all, if they were there and heard that he's, this is not getting to death, it's got to be confusing them. But then he says, hey, he's dead. And you expect him to say, oh, it's just, I'm so bummed. He's my good friend. You know, I love Lazarus. But he says, and I'm really glad like, what? And he says, Lazarus dead, and for your sake, I am glad because, so that you may believe. 
So I want you to pay attention to this. You don't have to underline it like Dre, underline everything. Just pay, it, just pay attention to this, all right? Because we're gonna, come in, we're gonna come back to it later. It's like your hand gets worn out. Anyway, uh, like, uh, it's like, uh, it's like, like look, look at this Bible. Can you see this Bible? It's because I heard Dre teach once out of this passage. <laughs> uh, so just remember that, right? So Jesus says, uh, Jesus says, hey, it, this is actually a good thing that you're not there because somehow this situation is going to lead to a deeper faith, a confidence, a clarity in who I am. So remember, just remember it, don't underline it. All right, um, and so Thomas, now Thomas is the guy, you know, Thomas is the ultimate realist. He's the ultimate skeptic, right? This is the guy in John 14, when Jesus says he's going away, he says, and you all know the way where I'm going. Thomas goes, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? Right? <laughs> this is the guy in John 20 that's out at 7-Eleven on the day of the resurrection, right? And he comes back like, hey, what happened? They're like, Jesus was here. He's like, I'm not gonna believe it unless I can put my, finger, my fingers in the holes. This, this is Thomas, right? So he's a realist, and I love this guy. He's like, he's learned that when Jesus says we're doing something, no one's changing his mind. You're not gonna change his mind. And so Thomas, also known as Didymus, which they both, both words mean, both names are the, mean twin. He said to the rest of the disciples, okay, let's just go and die with him, right? So he's just like, this is not good. We, we're going to Jerusalem. They're going to try to kill us, but you can't change his mind. Let's just go and die, right? So, but what you love is you love his heart. You love his devotion. He's ready to die for Jesus. He loves Jesus, right? Okay. And so on his arrival, uh, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for how long? Four days. Four days. And we'll come back to this next week, but he's... he's uh, He's been in the grave for four days. Usually in Israel, people are buried on the same day. It's a warm climate. Um, they, they don't embalm like in Egypt. And so bodies begin decaying fast while you put the, uh, the spices on to cover the smell. And so, so he's, you know, whatever has happened, wherever Jesus is, however far he is away, it's taken a while for the messenger to get there. He's waited two days on purpose. Now he's traveled back one day, two days, whatever it is. And whatever, by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been in the tomb, wrapped up, grave clothes for four days. And so now, Bethany, this is where the action's taking place. It was less than two miles from Jerusalem. We talked about that. And many Jews had come to Mary, to Martha and Mary to comfort them. And so, so funerals were a big deal in Israel. They would last for many days, a week or so, and mourners would come. They would even hire professional mourners to help set the tone. And so uh, there's, they're not very far from the big city, and so a lot of people know them. They're coming out, and uh, in the midst of this, uh, this whole scene, uh, verse 20, Martha hears that Jesus is coming. And, uh, and again, I want you to remember, like, they're, they've been at home, right? They send the messenger. The messenger comes back, we assume, I'm assuming that, but I'm assuming he's come back, and and we're, we're assuming that he says at least that this, this sickness will not end in death. Um, maybe he knows that Jesus is delaying. We don't know, but this has got to be a time of confusion for them. Like, like what? It, 
is going on. So she goes out to see him, and I want you to notice what she says, and we'll see this next week, but next week, her sister Mary will have her moment with Jesus, and she will say the exact same thing. What, what, what Martha is about to say is obviously what they've been saying to one another ever since the brother died. And in verse 21, it says, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, it's hard to know. You know, sometimes when you read scripture, you would love it if there was like a soundtrack that you could actually hear the tone of voice. It's possible that this was just a statement of fact. That she was just saying like, hey, we believe if you'd been here, you wouldn't have killed him, you wouldn't have died. It's possible. But I think it's also possible as much more than that. That within this statement is the unspoken question. Why didn't you come? Perhaps even uh, unspoken of, hey, I thought that you said this wasn't going to end in death. This takes us back to the story we started the day with about this woman that's gone through the worst week of her life because one, a person that she loved had gotten sick and at first they didn't think that much about it. As time goes on, they become concerned and so they, they send a message, they send for help. But the help never comes until it's too late. And the question that they're asking is, what if? I think this is the question that Mary and her, or Martha and her sister Mary have been asking, is that, hey, if, if, he just, if he just would have been, this wouldn't be happening. And I think it's very possible there's a lot of questions going through their minds. You know, I thought that he loved us. I thought he would drop everything. I thought he would just speak the word. I thought he said that this would not end in death. Lord, if you'd been here, if you'd only been here, but you weren't here, you didn't come, but if you'd been here, this would not be happening. Now we're gonna stop the account there. We're gonna come back next week, see what she says next, Jesus' response. Um, But I wanna stop here for today And I want to focus on, kind of highlight two important principles that jump out at me from this passage and then end up, as we often do, with one important question for our lives. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Signs When God Delays. So let's jump in. The first first principle that jumps out, we see in this story, in fact, we'll see it throughout Scripture, is that God's timing is often not our timing. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> oh, yeah. God's timing is... Now, before we jump into this point, I need to give you a quick spoiler alert. If, if you've never read or heard of the story of Lazarus, and it's very possible for some of you here, um, what we're going to see next week is that, that Jesus is going to do the impossible. That he is going to raise this brother Lazarus who's been in the tomb for four days... He's going to raise him from the dead. This will be the seventh sign of the Gospel of John. 
the seventh supernatural sign, the ultimate sign that Jesus gives the people before his arrest of who he is and why he's come. Next week, we'll unpack all of that. And so it's, it's going to be amazing, right? It's gonna be a time of where God's glory is revealed, where Jesus' glory is, it's gonna be a time of celebration, it's gonna be a time of joy. But what I want you to catch is that's next week. It's not today. Today we're in the middle. Today we're in the spot where nothing makes sense. Today we're in, in, in the place of God's delay. Today we're in a place where they called and Jesus didn't come. And it's really interesting because we see this pattern throughout Scripture. We see it time and time again where God pours out his love on someone and then they go through a time where they find themselves in the middle of a crisis where they call and God is not coming. And it always raises great questions, doubts, fears about God's love, about his presence. Um, I was thinking this week, let me just give you three quick examples. I was thinking of Abraham, right? So Genesis 12, God speaks to this man named Abraham, and he gives him this series of amazing promises. He says, I, I'm going to turn you, catch this, into a great Nation, You don't have any kids yet, but you're going to become a great nation. And I am going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to protect you. Um, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And one day through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Amazing blessing, right? But if we fast forward, we go through a, a couple generations. His family has to go down to Egypt you know, with Joseph. And, and then a lot of you know, through a series of events, everything changes. And this family of Abraham's has now become slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt. Harsh slavery, brutal slavery. And I, I want you to picture yourself. You're, you're one of those descendants of Abraham. Maybe you've heard this promise about great nation and those who bless you will be blessed, those who curse you. And you're, you're like, God, where are you? You're crying out to God, and he's not coming. I think of Joseph's story later on. You know, as a young man, 17 years old, God gives him these amazing promises. He, he gives him these dreams that, that show a future where his whole family, even his parents, are kind of bowing down to him like he's the leader of their family and uh, he's so excited about his future, and then life begins to go from bad to worse. He finds himself in the middle. And his brothers decide to kill him, to take him out. Then they change their mind. They say, well, let's just sell him. They'll sell him into slavery. He becomes a slave in the house of Potiphar. Then Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of rape. He ends up in prison. Once in prison, even his prison friends forget all about him. Joseph's in the middle, right? I thought I was so loved. I, I thought I was gonna be a leader, but he's in the middle. 
I thought of the story of David. You know, David is a young man uh, anointed to be the next king of Israel. Just imagine that, to be a young man. You're the, you're the eighth son, you're the runt of, runt of the family, and yet you're chosen by the famous prophet to be the next king, and sure enough, it begins to come true. Like, you have this amazing victory over Goliath. You become famous. Your name's in the newspapers. Everyone knows you, and then, what, 10 to 15 years of living life on the run as a deranged king is after you. You're living, in the, the, you're living in the wilderness like an animal. You're hiding out in caves. You're often a step away from death for years. God, I thought you loved me. You're in the middle. And this is hard. This happens in our lives too, right? You come to Jesus, you, you experience his love, his life-transforming power, you experience his goodness, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in the middle. You know, you're out of work. You're praying for a job. You're getting behind on your mortgage. Your life group is praying. Your family's praying. Your friends are praying. You're doing everything you can. You got your resume out there. You're networking, and yet nothing is working. And finally, that day comes, you, you lose your house, and you can't, you can't believe it. God, I, I thought you loved us. You're in the middle. For some of us in this room, it's, it's been a health issue. It's either, a, it's a serious health issue either for ourselves or someone we love. And you pray, and your life group's praying, your friends are praying, and, and you know God can heal. You've seen it before. You're totally convinced, and yet, and yet he doesn't. You're calling, but he's not coming. He's delaying. And the one you're praying for dies. Or the sickness and illness that you struggle with, it, it's not getting better. Sometimes it's a spiritual issue. You know, we've seen God work in our lives, and yet there's this one area of sin we're just trying to overcome, and we keep, God, will you take this away? Will you give me the power? And yet we just seem powerless to overcome. Maybe it's an issue of doubt. We just, we're doubt, God, would you just give me the faith? And we just keep calling out, you know, year after year. We're calling, but he's not coming. We're in a tough marriage. We want to make it work. We're married to someone who's just not interested. And you keep pleading with them. Would you, would you, can we just go to counseling? Can we, when they just, they're not interested. And you pray, and you pray, and your friends are praying, and then your spouse comes home one day and tells you they found someone else, and they're leaving. You're in the middle. You're a single adult, and you just, the desire of your heart is to be married. And you've been true to Jesus, and you've followed him. You've not, you've not surrendered your standards. You know what the word says about marrying a non-believer, and 
And so you've not gone that route. And you know what the word says about the importance of sexual purity. You've not compromised. And that's, that's led to the loss of certain relationships. And you're praying and your friends are praying. And yet there's no hope in sight. It's been going on for years. Your biological clock is ticking and that dream of children is going away. You're in the middle. And one of the things like we, we learn from scripture, we see in this story is that God's timing is often not our timing. Number two. The, the second principle, and I, I want to give this to you, but I want to say before I do that this may be hard for some of you to hear today. It may be hard for some of you to believe. I think it's, it's really easy to believe what the Bible says when we're not in the middle. When we're in the middle, it, it's a whole different, different thing. You know, this week we were meeting as a life group team to, to kind of write the first week of study that's coming up next week. And one of the things I shared with them is that when I'm putting together a message that I try to keep in my mind real people here I know at Rocky Peak going through real things, hard things. Would this be an encouragement to that person? Because I, I don't ever want to be trite. And this is one of those principles that it's so easy to affirm in the good times, it's so hard to believe when we're in the middle. But it goes like this, and I, I, wanna, I wanna make a case for it from scripture, that God's delays are always, and I choose that carefully, are always for our good and his glory. That when God delays, it's always for our good and his glory. And we see that today in this story. Let's start, let's, let's take them in reverse order. Let's talk about his glory. They're always for our good, his glory. But let's take them in reverse order. Let's start with his glory. This is what Jesus says at the very beginning of this episode. The messenger shows up and says, the one whom we love is sick. Obviously very sick. They've sent a messenger great distance and look what Jesus says there in your note, Jesus. When he, when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's what? Glory. It's for God's glory so that the God's son may be glorified through it. That, that this delay, that Jesus was not responding. They were calling. He was not coming. It, it wasn't random. It's not because he didn't love them. It's because he did. It, that God was going to do something in and through their lives that was going to reveal who God is and who the Son is. That what is happening is, is God is setting up a situation where they can be used to reveal God's glory. But it's not just for God's glory, it's for their good. We see this in what Jesus said to the disciples. This is that passage I told you to pay attention to, but not to underline. That um, when Jesus hears, when he tells them they're going to Jerusalem, he says, Lazarus is, is dead. 
Like when the messenger came, the message was he's alive but sick, but Jesus has now waited two days, and whether it's on the way or since then, he's no longer alive. He's dead. Jesus is delayed, and he's now dead. And he says, and I'm, I'm glad for your sake that, that Jesus was going to bring good in the life of his disciples through this delay. But on top of this, it was not just for their good. It was for the good of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And I think this is what John is getting at in verse 5. This is why he sets it up like he does. It's obviously very intentional. And he starts off by saying, uh, the messenger comes and says, the one you love is sick. And so the natural flow would simply to be, and so Jesus said, this sickness is not for uh, it's not going to end in death. Is for God. That's what's the natural flow, but he doesn't do that. John wants to set the stage, and so John takes a verse, he's, he's quick sidebar in verse 5, and this is what he says. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why does he say this? Because what is about to happen is going to look like he doesn't love them. And I want you to notice what John says. So, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. And what's the very next word? So. He loved them so he didn't come. Like the reason he delayed was not because he didn't love them, but because he did. And his vision for their life was so much bigger than simply healing their brother. His vision was to open their eyes that they would understand who he is in a new way that would lead to a new level of relationship with him and a new level of life with a capital L that could not happen any other way. And we're going to see what happens because when we get to John chapter 12, he's going to tell us a story like Mary's story. As a result of what she's seen in Jesus' life, as a result of this, in the very next chapter, we're going to be told that Mary, when Jesus comes to their house the next time, goes into the back room, takes out this vial that's incredibly valuable, worth a year's worth of Labor, I think it was, this was incredibly valuable. This, this perfume coming from like India, super expensive. And she's going to come and she's going to break it and she's going to pour it on his feet and she's going to wash his hair. I wash her feet, his feet with her hair, and everyone is going to be blown away at this worship that she gives to Jesus was just a window into her life of how she now saw him. Through this event we're going through in chapter 11, her view of Jesus is going to go to a whole new level in a way that's going to transform her life. And this is what we see throughout the Bible is that when we're in the middle, it always leads us to question God, his goodness, his love for us. But but at the end, we can look back and see, oh, he was up to something bigger than I imagined. Think with me of the story of Abraham, right? And, the, and so if you're an Israelite, you're down a couple hundred years later, you're slaves, now harsh slavery. You're calling out to God, and he's not coming. 
and you're wondering about this promise to be a great nation, but let me ask you something. How do you create a nation? How do you keep a, a people from intermarrying with the people of the land? How, how do you keep a nation sort of uh, kind of racially pure, so to speak, for, is what, what the Jews were, to a separate people. How does that happen? How do you do that? Well, here's an idea. Take them down to Egypt, where Egyptians won't even have dinner with them because they're shepherds. And then allow them to go into slavery. They can't intermingle. They can't go away. And there you build a nation. A nation that's ready when the glory of God is going to be revealed. When Moses comes down and with the most amazing acts in Old Testament history, the exodus, the plagues, the splitting of the Red Sea. This is what Israel will always look back to as their greatest moment, the high point of redemption. But see, now they will know at the end of the story how this was all for God's glory and their good, but not in the middle. Think with me of the story of Joseph. You know, how do you think Joseph felt? I've often wondered about what, what was going through his mind as he gets thrown into jail, being falsely accused of rape after just serving this man so faithfully. He's betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery, then falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison. And then even after he interprets the dreams of the prison, they forget about him. How does that feel? How does your dreams, how does the love of God feel at that moment? But then comes the day when, when through a series of events that overnight Joseph is released from prison, becomes a second in control, like the prime minister of, of Egypt, and he's in a position to save the entire land from the great famine that's coming. And as a result of that, his family will come down to, to buy food and he will be able to save the entire family, which is the plan of God. It's through this family, the Messiah is going to come. And, and so his brothers, when he finally reveals himself to them, they're scared to death. He's going to take revenge. But look what he says. He says, now, do not be distressed. He's talking to his brothers. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that whom? That God. I want you to circle that. All the years he'd seen his brothers, but now at the end of the story, he's seen God's glory and his good, and he, he says, oh, God was behind all this, that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing or reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. He couldn't see that in the middle. Maybe he did. But I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, ruler of all Egypt. God was in it. His delay was for God's glory, for his good. Think of the story of David. You know, in the middle, you're running from Saul. Think of the Psalms pouring out his heart to God so many times. God, where are you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. And, then, and then comes the end of the story when he finally becomes king and God has rescued him from Saul and his enemies and, 
And David writes a psalm. You might want to write this psalm down to look at it later. It's not in your notes. It's Psalm 18. And it says in the intro that David wrote this psalm after God had delivered him from Saul and all his enemies. And you know how he starts it off? He starts and he says, like, I love you, O Lord, my strength. He's no longer in the middle. He's at the end. Now he can see it. And I believe that David went on to be the greatest king because of those years, because of the lessons, because of the trust, because of what he experienced in those years. That God's, delay or God's delays are always for our good and his glory. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes in your life and sometimes in my life, we live long enough to see this. You know, if you're Joseph, you get, you get to live long enough to see the end of your story. And you can look back on the middle with new perspective. If you're David, you get to live long enough to look back and see. And there's many times in our life for you and I where we will live long enough to look back and see what God was up to, at least part of it. And, and if, you're, if you're like me, you've been through times like this where I never want to go through that again. <laughs> but I would never change it for the world because of how you, and, and so there's many times we will get to do, but I want you to catch this. There are other times, men and women, when we will go through very difficult things and we will never live long enough to see it. that we won't see it until the next life. And these accounts like this in scripture, they're there to give us that perspective. Hey, that when God delays, it's always for his good or for his glory, for our good. Now, this leads to a very important question for our life. There in your note sheet, you have a section, signs one key question. So here's the question. Is there any area where you are calling, but God is not coming? So right now, is there any area right now where you're in the middle right now? You're in a financial crisis. You're in a health crisis. You're in a relational crisis. There's some area of your life where, where you are calling, but God is not coming. And what we've seen today is that when we call and God is not coming, it's always for our good, for his glory. And what's amazing about this is that that's just not a principle we just see in the story of Lazarus or these other examples, but this is a, an explicit promise that God gives us in the New Testament. There in your note sheet, I put a very famous verse. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, but you may not know this, that Paul made this statement in the context of writing to Christians who are suffering persecution. And in that context, he says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love them. Notice he doesn't say all things are good. Joseph being beaten and taken to slavery, that's not good. Lazarus dying, that's not a good thing. David being chased by Saul, but, but what God is saying is that he's bigger than that. 
And then he's able to take all these things and like a recipe, turn them into something good. And so he says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. So it's for followers of Jesus. He says, take it to the bank. This is a promise that God is working in all things in your life. It's always for the good. Now, when he says good, he doesn't mean immediate good nor superficial good. If you read it in context, the good he's talking about has two characteristics. First of all, he's talking about the deep transformation of who we are as a person, that we be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he says. And, and he's talking about not just short-term good, but he's talking about long-term eternal good, that from the end of the story, we would see how incredibly good this was. And so the question that I have for you today is, is there any situation you're facing in your life, an area of your life where, where you are calling, but God is not coming? And where it's causing you to question his love, his goodness, his power, whether he sees you. And is it possible that what scripture says is true? That he's always working for your good in his glory. Amen. 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 Let's pray. So, Lord, we come before you in this incredible story of, of your delay. Lord, when these, these two sisters, this brother that you, you just loved, you've been at their home so many times, and they expected that because of that love, you would drop everything or say the word, but you didn't. You, you didn't come when they called, and yet it was not because you didn't love them, it's because you did. And so, Father, we, we pray that even now that you would increase our faith, our confidence in you, and that even as we sing this song with these beautiful words, it is well with my soul, we pray that you would come and meet us, speak to us by name, let us know that, especially for those of us who are in the middle right now, that you're with us, you love us, you're working for our good and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.